This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Avoid what is unwholesome. Perform good actions. Purify the mind. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. great qualities of the Buddha, or the qualities of great compassion and great wisdom. The compassion that he embodied was this tremendous sense of loving care he had for the suffering of beings, and that strong wish to help beings out of the suffering. It was a care that was so strong that it fueled countless lifetimes of practice, innumerable lifetimes of practice, culminating in the wisdom of his enlightenment. It was compassion which motivated that tremendous effort involved in coming to full awakening, to full understanding. And his enlightenment was precisely about seeing the root causes of suffering, how it is that people and us, how we get involved and entangled in suffering in our lives and the possibility of coming out of it the possibilities of happiness, the possibilities of freedom. And he spent 45 years after his enlightenment teaching and admonishing and urging, even tricking people into waking up. His concern was to awaken people out of the dream, out of the dream that involves so much suffering in one's life. He saw so deeply the emptiness of all phenomena, the essential emptiness and the essential interdependence. And it was his compassion and wisdom that wanted other people to see that, other people to come to that same place of understanding. All 45 years of his teachings and all of the skillful means and all of the ways that he was urging people to awaken are summed up in one short verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses of his teachings. So it's quite powerfully succinct, the summarizing of 45 years of teaching efforts. And he said, 
avoid what is unwholesome. Perform good actions. Purify the mind. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. Avoid what is unskillful, do what is good, purify the mind. And the last line, this is the teaching of all the Buddhas, that's an interesting line in itself because it points to the timelessness of the truth, the timelessness of the Dhamma. It said that there were many Buddhas before this last historical one, Siddhartha Gautama, and many Buddhas yet to come. And yet the teachings are always the same. The teachings are one. Avoid what is unwholesome, do what is good, purify the mind. It sounds so simple. In some sense it is simple. It's just not easy. What are the unwholesome actions to be avoided? With his usual clarity, he didn't just utter the stanza and leave us to figure it out. Well, what's skillful, what's unskillful? It's very direct, very straightforward, very clear. He laid out ten actions. Three of the body, four of speech, three of the mind. Ten actions which are unwholesome. Unwholesome in the sense that they cause suffering to ourselves, they cause suffering to others. That's the measure of something being unskillful. So what are these three unwholesome actions of the body? Very straightforward. First is to avoid killing things. Seems very obvious, doesn't it? Avoid killing. Avoid killing other human beings. I just read there was a there was a poll taken in this country, an article in a newspaper, and it said that seven percent of the population for ten million dollars would be willing to kill a stranger. <laughs> Some interesting set of values. <laughs> it is interesting, though, to look at the ways our culture, and all societies, not, o- not only ours, all the ways historically that we've justified killing other human beings. For ideologies, political or religious or economic, It's not only killing other human beings, killing animals, killing insects. As as was mentioned in the opening night of the course, um, in a month or so, it'll be hunting season. And one just wonders what is going on. You know, what sense of alienation, what sense of separation from connection with the fact but there is another life form there, there's another being. It's a slightly different form, it looks different. But it's the same life force at work. On an even smaller scale, I was in a barber shop a while ago, and there was a fly buzzing around, and the barber just took out his fly swatter, and I just had this moment there, <laughs> you know, this uh, sort of gut reaction to it. Of course. The barber didn't think, he didn't give a moment's thought to it. It was just, you know, perfectly natural thing to do. But even that fly, even that fly is alive. Why, why be in a relationship that involves destruction? The Buddha is saying, avoid killing. This is an unwholesome action of the body. So it's really to see on all the different levels. Sometimes it's complex. Sometimes the question itself becomes very complex. What do you do with malaria-bearing mosquitoes? It's not, it's not easy. 
and sometimes we're faced with real, with real difficult choices. The point of stressing this particular understanding is that we should stop and consider very carefully that our actions should not be automatic, they should not be habitual. We don't like something, swat it. So we begin to understand that killing, destruction, is an unwholesome attitude of mind, causing suffering to ourselves, obvious suffering to the other being. The second unwholesome action to avoid, and again, it's very obvious, although there are so many subtleties to it, and that is to avoid stealing, to avoid taking that which isn't given. I was teaching in Switzerland earlier this year, and there was a man from England there on the retreat who had been at one of the very early three-month retreats here at IMS, maybe 15 years ago. And he told me a story of an experience he had been having. He said that for the past 15 years, or however long, he had not been paying taxes to the English government. And not, from any, not from any moral justification, because he didn't approve of the government or what they were doing, but really just avoiding taxes out of greed. And he said that just a few months before this retreat in Switzerland, he had decided to sort of clean up that, that aspect of his life, which he said over the years had really been weighing on him. You know, in, in some kind of subtle way, that, that kind of dishonesty had been weighing on his mind. And this was a significant amount of money. He said it was something like 20,000 pounds. You know, and he, he was, didn't have a lot of money, he was a working person. He said as he paid it off, this feeling of lightness in his mind, and ease in his mind, and a kind of purity in his mind became so strong. It was really inspiring to me, and a reminder that our actions do affect our minds. You know, and we think that they're not important, and we think you know, nobody will know, or we'll get away with something, or whatever, but we know. And so the Buddha is pointing out that stealing in any of its forms, whether it's an even more obvious form or some level of dishonesty like that, is an unwholesome, it's an unskillful act. The third unskillful action, which again has tremendous ramifications in our lives and tremendous possibilities for learning, is the arena of sexual misconduct. The Buddha said sexual misconduct is an unwholesome action. What does sexual misconduct mean? At different levels, it means different things. So, for example, people living regular household lives, lives in the world, undertaking the basic five precepts, it means, in the most simple expression of it, not committing adultery, not getting involved with someone who is committed to someone else, not getting involved in relationships in which there's deception, in which somebody is being deceived. And we know, I mean, we know very well from either our own experience or the experience of friends or people we know, the immense amount of suffering that gets involved, that gets created through not taking care in our sexual relationships. But this is a powerful energy, and we need to be very, very sensitive to whether it's in the service of love or the service of greed. There's another level of sexual misconduct, and that is for people 
either who come on retreat and take the precept of abstinence, of celibacy for a period of time, or monks or nuns who take that precept for as long as they're in robes. And that means refraining from any sexual activity. As you will see during this time, in something that is very productive to see, taking this precept of refraining from any sexual activity for a period of time, as we do here, it reveals so much to us. It shows us so clearly and so directly and intimately the force and power of desire. Well, this, is, this is the driving energy in samsara, this force of desire. It's a chance to see it. If you'll forgive the whatever it is, to see it very nakedly. <laughs> it's really a, a very um, wonderful opportunity to come to an understanding of what this force is about when we're not simply acting on it each time. Because we see its power, and through the abstinence for a period of time, we also see its transiency. That is a very powerful lesson. We see that we don't have to act on every desire in order to feel fulfilled. That actually the desires in themselves come and go. So depending on one's level of precepts, sexual misconduct means different things. These are the three actions of the body that the Buddha pointed out as being unwholesome, unskillful, causing of suffering, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. There are four actions of speech. I think it's extremely helpful to understand deeply and reflect deeply on the power of speech in our lives. Because this is something, in the normal course of our lives, we do a lot. We spend a lot of time talking and communicating to one another through speech. Very rarely do we pay attention to how we're doing it, to the quality of it, to the effect of it. False speech, lying, is the first of these actions which is unskillful. And it's very interesting to watch the range of our ability to lie. I had a shocking experience, my first course with Upandita in 1984 because I basically thought of myself as a pretty honest person, and certainly in relationship to my teacher. And I went in for one interview, and I reported something, and he said, that's not true. <laughs> it was shocking and devastating, because I realized that he was right. You know, I was saying something in a way, through something going on in my mind, of thinking some experiences are better than others, and I had had this happen, and I thought it still should be happening. No, some weird process going on, reporting something. And he was clear enough to see that that really couldn't have been happening. What was so useful for me in that after I recovered, which <laughs> took days, it really took days, was both to not to take for granted my ability to be truthful. To see, yeah, there are parts of the mind that shade things, that exaggerate things, that shape things. So to get a very, a very strong example of how my mind was doing that. Because it's only in our awareness, when we really are seeing these subtleties, that we can begin to refine our commitment to honesty. 
If we just assume that everything that comes out of our mouths is true, we don't really give the necessary attention. And it's, it's instructive just to see and to look at the reasons why it is, why do we exaggerate, why do we, whether they're major lies, which we know we're doing for some reason, or these minor ones, these, these little shadings of the truth, why do we do it? To really look at our motives, is it to protect somebody? or to protect ourselves. We think people won't like us if we say something. There is a tremendous power in the simplicity of being truthful. But it takes a tremendous sense of awareness that we're really paying attention. Many habits have been cultivated unconsciously in the course of our lifetime. So that's the first action of speech that's unwholesome, saying that which isn't true. The second action of speech, which is unwholesome, is using harsh and angry language. And I think this is also really important that we see when we're using language aggressively, that's the equivalent of beating somebody. We're using the, we're using the energy of speech, but the effect is as if we're hitting them. And so it's really to see and to pay attention what's the quality of our speech. Is it coming from a caring place, or are we simply venting an emotion? Buddha talked of how harsh speech, angry speech, is the cause, is the karmic cause for the loss of beauty. And we can see it. We can see when somebody is really is really speaking very angrily and very harshly. We can see the ugliness inherent in that. We can see it visually as well as feel it, feel the impact. This is not lying, not using harsh language. The third of the unwholesome actions of speech is something that's very difficult and takes a tremendous awareness to refrain from, and that is gossip, sort of backbiting, talking about other people. It seems so prevalent, you know, so much a natural part of what we do, ranging from mildly benign to sometimes quite, quite malicious where the effect of our words really causes disharmony. And I think we've all been part of that situation on both ends. Recently, somebody came up to visit me who's writing a book on spiritual spiritual movement in America. And he was doing an interview with me. And it was a very interesting journalistic technique he was using because he let out all these remarks about the various spiritual luminaries in the country. You know, slightly negative remark with this hook for me to bite on. You know, to kind of get in, yeah, you're right, that person is really, they don't really know. And, <laughs> yeah. and he did it so skillfully, it was just like engaging me in a, in a conversation but the tape recorder was going all the time. And I'm happy that I could really see what he was doing because I could watch that moment's sort of interest in my mind in getting into that kind of speech. But the awareness that was present actually was a great protection for me because it obviously, in that situation, but really in all situations, it's harmful. 
It really is harmful. It harms ourselves. It harms other people. It creates disharmony. So the Buddha was very explicit about this. He said, this is an unskillful action. We shouldn't be engaged in this kind of backbiting, this kind of gossip. And so it's something really to look at in our lives. And the last of the unwholesome actions of speech, again, is something that's very, very difficult. Although it sounds so simple, we're so conditioned. And that is the unwholesome action of frivolous talk, of useless talk. How much of our conversation with people is really useless? That there's no point to it. It's just for the sake of talking. What happens is, if we keep strengthening that side of our speech, what happens is that our words become worthless. And that's a great loss, because words have tremendous power. There's tremendous value in well-spoken words. But when we're not sensitive to that, and we engage in lots of useless speech, There is a loss of respect. Nobody pays attention to us. There's that sense of loss of value of what we say. I think it's interesting that out of these ten unwholesome actions, the largest category of them has to do with speech. I think the Buddha is pointing to something very important, that we need to recognize how powerful a force speech is in our lives. The impact that it has on ourselves, the impact that it has on other people. This is not something to gloss over. This is a central part of a, real, of a real journey of awakening. So there's three unwholesome actions of the body. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. Four of speech. Lying, harsh and angry speech. Backbiting, and gossip, and useless talk. And there are three unwholesome actions of mind. The first of them is the mind state or the energy of covetousness. It's interesting to watch this force in the mind and to see the, the destructive power of it. The mind that is always wanting, that is never satisfied. It's always looking for more and more and more without ever any sense of being fulfilled or reaching fulfillment. It's personified in the Buddhist cosmology in a very powerful image. In the cosmology, there's this realm of beings, they're called hungry ghosts, which really are about the coveting mind. And these beings are represented as having huge stomachs and pinhole mouths. So no matter how much they take, they're never, they're never fulfilled, never satisfied. And we can see that in the world today, and sometimes we can see it in ourselves. It's that endless desiring mind, coveting mind. And what it does, it destroys a very beautiful quality in us. When covetousness is strong, what it destroys in us is the quality that is similar to metta, to loving-kindness, it's called mudita, or sympathetic joy, which means the delight in other people's happiness. When covetous is strong and we see other people being happy, we're not delighting in their happiness. We're thinking, oh, I want that, how can I get that? And so it robs us of a quality of mind that really beautifies our lives. 
So it's the first of the unskillful mental actions, covetousness. The second of the unskillful actions of mind is ill will, is anger, is hatred. We get angry when we don't get what we want. On so many, so many levels, in so many dimensions. We want something, we don't get it, we get angry. We also get angry when we do get what we don't want. Something unpleasant comes to us, we don't like it, and so we get angry. Something that is very important to understand in this dimension is that anger is an unwholesome, is an unskillful state of mind. But there are some important subtle implications of that statement. Now in this time in history, there is a tremendous sophistication of psychological awareness. Really, in some way, is the age of psychology, especially in the West. And one of the great lessons that we've learned through this awareness is that suppressing anger is not very healthy. Denying it, pretending that it's not there. And we know that. We know that if we're suppressing the anger, it's going to come out in some neurotic underground way. It's going to cause illness in the body. But what has happened to some extent is that people have sometimes, perhaps often, taken this insight that suppressing anger is not helpful and elevated anger to a place of honor. And I have heard, it's been, it's been expressed, yes, we should honor our anger. The Buddha is saying something very different than this. And I think it's of critical importance to understand. What he's saying and pointing out and inviting us to look for ourselves is not that anger should be honored. What he is saying is that anger is unwholesome, is unskillful, that it causes suffering to ourselves, it causes suffering to others. What we need to learn in this is not then that it should be suppressed or denied. What we need to honor is the recognition of the fact that anger may be present, not glorifying the state, not thinking, oh yes, anger is great, it empowers me, I feel strong, and in so many ways unconsciously strengthening this destructive force. The Buddha's pointing out this is an unskillful state. We need to recognize it when it's present, because it's present in all of us at different times. It comes, it arises. The question then is, how can we learn to let go of it? How can we learn to unhook from it, to disidentify from it, not to be lost in it? This takes a very heightened sense and and ability of mindfulness and wise attention, so that we're not pretending that we're not angry, And we're not pushing it down. We really are opening to it with a wise and skillful attention so that we're not lost, so that we're not strengthening it. So the first unwholesome action of the mind is covetousness. The second is anger or hatred. The third is something that is so far-reaching in terms of our basic understanding of ourselves and the world and our lives. And that is the unwholesome action of wrong view. And wrong view here means something very specific. 
It means not considering or not understanding the law of karma. Law of karma meaning that actions have consequences, that actions bring results. When this wrong view is present, that is when we don't understand that actions bring results, it's like trying to navigate through our lives without any understanding at all of how things are happening. You know, we, we're wanting happiness, we're wanting to be at peace. If we don't understand in a very basic way how the law of karma is working, over and over again we do those things unknowingly which cause suffering. This understanding that every action we do is a seed which bears fruit. This is very powerful. The Buddha called it the light of the world because it illuminates this journey of ours through life. We see where we're going. Where are our our actions leading? Any of our actions, our actions of speech, actions of our body, the way we relate to one another, each one of our actions is going to bear some fruit. Where is the action leading? Do we want to go there? If we don't consider this, we're just moving blindly. We're walking blindly through our lives. And so stay entangled in all kinds of difficulties. So These are the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha pointed out. In some sense, they're very simple, they're very obvious. Sometimes I think of the Buddha as being like this just loving parent talking to their child. Don't kill, (laughs) don't steal, don't lie. (laughs) Just the most simple, obvious things, but when we really look closely at them, we see that, yes, we may know it on some level, we may know it on some somewhat surface level, and we nod our heads and we agree. But if we take these guidelines as rules of training, not assuming that, well, I don't do any of those things, not assuming that we are already perfect in them, but really look in our lives and take them as rules of training, what happens is that each one of these gets refined in very beautiful ways. We begin to understand our actions on more and more subtle levels. And as we refrain from doing unskillful actions, something very wonderful happens. We find that we're happier. That's what the whole teaching is about. It's about being happy, genuinely happy. This is the great compassion of the Buddha. He's saying, these are the things which cause suffering. They cause suffering for us, they cause suffering for other people. Pay enough attention so as not to do them. Basic part of understanding a spiritual path. Buddha sometimes talked of these ten unwholesome actions as as really being dangerous. There should be a certain fear of the dangers. And a couple of years ago I was listening to a talk given by the Dalai Lama. And he said something that, again, was very simple, but it it struck home to me. Somebody asked him, somebody asked the Dalai Lama about fear. And he said, sometimes fear is good. That's kind of a, you know, kind of a surprising thing, because normally we think, oh, all fear is bad. But he said, fear of things which are dangerous is actually wise. But that's wisdom. If we see a sign, danger, strong under, undertow, you, know, you, you're by the ocean and you see the sign, 
Do you hate the sign? No. Do you hate the undertow? No. It's not the fear of aversion. It's not the fear of hatred. It's really the fear of discriminating wisdom. It's recognizing, yes, that undertow is dangerous. I need to take care. That's precisely the quality of fear the Dalai Lama was talking about. It's just, it's wisdom. It's really seeing this is dangerous, this is helpful. You also said in that same talk something very sweet. I don't know, I guess many of you have either heard him or seen him at times, but the Dalai Lama is really quite an extraordinary being, tremendously embodying kindness and compassion and a, what seems like a, a really selfless humility. He was, he was talking about the need for training ourselves in avoiding these unwholesome actions. Not simply thinking that, yes, we can do them, but undertaking it as a training. He said that people from his part of Tibet uh, were known for their quick tempers, their quick anger, and that he himself had one. Uh, but that over the years he had really trained himself you know, to refrain from that, to let go of it. He said, now, you know, the disturbance may come in the mind for just a moment, but because of the training, he's able to let go. And he said that this has happened that even though he's a very lazy practitioner, <laughs> you know, that he doesn't have much time for practice, but even still he has seen this great improvement over the years. <laughs> it was sort of a very heartwarming uh, interchange. So this is the first teaching of the Buddhas, avoid what is unwholesome. Why? Because it causes suffering. Suffering to ourselves, suffering to others. The second part of the teaching is to perform wholesome actions, to perform good actions. These are the actions that are for our own welfare and happiness and for the happiness of others. There's one important concept in the Buddha Dharma that is found throughout the teachings and yet is very often misunderstood, misrepresented. And it has to do with the understanding of performing wholesome actions. And this is the teaching, the Pali word for it is punya. And punya is translated usually as merit or meritorious actions. And what this means is, this concept or idea of punya, of merit, meritorious actions, those actions which are the seeds, planting the seeds of happiness. In one of the suttas, the discourses that the Buddha gave, it's called the Mangala Sutta, Discourse on Blessings. And the Buddha went through this whole list of things which are blessings in one's life. And worldly blessings, spiritual blessings. And one of the blessings that he highlights is having done meritorious deeds in the past. Why is that? Because it is these meritorious deeds which are the source, they are the wellspring of happiness in our present life. Things are not happening accidentally. To the degree that we are living in fortunate circumstances, in happy circumstances, it is the result of our own past wholesome deeds. And so the Buddha is saying, these deeds are a wellspring for us of happiness now and in the future. Don't neglect doing this. 
But sometimes when people hear of this concept of merit or meritorious actions, somehow it translates, or I get the image of a sort of being in the first grade, you know, and getting gold stars for good deeds. You know, those little gold stars on the papers. And it kind of smacks of, you know, self, self-righteousness or, or just a lot of self. This is a misunderstanding. Really what is being pointed to is a very profound part of the teachings, which is the interdependence of all phenomena. That things are not happening independent of other events. That everything we experience is the result of certain conditions. And the Buddha was simply pointing out, this is how the world is unfolding. There are certain conditions for happiness to arise. And again, it's a, it's a question both of worldly happiness and real spiritual peace. There are conditions for it. He's saying, plant the seeds of those conditions. This is what brings happiness to us. So what are, what are these conditions? What are the wholesome actions we can perform that actually create joy in our lives? The first of them is something I think most of us are very familiar with, which is the action and the quality of generosity. Just that act of giving, of sharing sharing of our time, of our energy, of our resources, really being willing to let go of that holding on and grasping for ourselves, the willingness to share with others. This is a tremendous sense of joy, both in the moment and for future happiness. It brings good results. And it's really interesting to see, to watch in ourselves, the relationship between generosity and loving feeling. These two are very intimately connected. Very often the loving feeling is the motivation for the generous act. And the generous act, in the the doing of it, generates more and more loving feeling in us. And so, as we practice this, we find ourselves in this spiral upward of a very beautiful way of being. Just spiraling around love and generosity and love and generosity. We begin to be embodying this more and more. It's a practice. Just like everything else we're doing is a practice to strengthen certain qualities. We can practice generosity. A couple of practices that I've done with it, which have been very helpful. One is not really to act on the, on the generous thoughts. You know, a thought comes to mind, why don't you give something or do something to actually do it, not to let the thought go by. I say this with a little cautionary note. This is a very good practice in your daily life in the world. It's not such a helpful practice on retreat because you'll be running around leaving little pieces of chocolate on your neighbor's cushions and that's basically a nuisance (laughs) in the context of the retreat. There's a greater gift that you can give which is the gift of silence and aloneness. But in the context of our lives in the world, acting on these, on these moments of generosity is very helpful.
with all of these actions, both the unwholesome and the skillful, it's very helpful to bring a wise attention to the quality of our minds as we're doing it. So it's not a question simply of believing all of this. And the Buddha laid out this list and he pointed out with a lot of clarity, these are the things which cause suffering, these are the things which cause happiness. It's not a question of just taking it and believing it. It's really a question, an invitation to examine for ourselves. What does it feel like when we're giving something? We know. Then we know for ourselves. We know that quality of generosity, the quality of love. Okay, so that's the first of the wholesome actions. The second is of sila, of morality, of non-harming, which basically means avoiding those ten unwholesome actions, not doing those things which harm others. There's one particular power of morality which I want to mention. There's much that could be said about this. There's, there's a tremendous strength in living with a very fundamental integrity, a commitment to not harming other beings through our actions, whether of our body, of our speech, of our mind. One particular strength that comes from this strong commitment to non-harming is that it gives power to whatever aspirations we have in our lives. Now, we all have different aspirations for many different things. Our dreams, what we really wish for ourselves. Why is it that some people, these aspirations seem to flower and be fulfilled so easily, and some people, the aspirations seem always thwarted? What gives strength to the, to the power of the aspiration is precisely the foundation, the groundwork of morality, of integrity. When we're living in that way, that's what empowers these aspirations in our lives. And again, this is something really to test for ourselves. I've seen it so often. It's a very powerful, active force in our lives. There's generosity, there's morality, Third wholesome action is something which we don't often think about, and it's not very prevalent generally in our society, and that is the quality in our minds of respect. It's a certain attitude in which we value that which is worthy of respect. And it's not very highly developed you know, in our society. Mostly what's respected here are the outward things. Respect for money or power or fame. You know, these are the people who are known. It's quite interesting. Go to some, go to some place in America just ask an ordinary person, you know, where's, where's the nearest spiritual teacher? <laughs> they won't know what you're talking about. You go to any little village in India, there are ten of them. And I'm not suggesting that they're all necessarily so spiritual, because there are many who are not. What I am suggesting is that it's a cultural value. You know, that people have a respect for genuine wisdom. The Buddha talked about respect for many different things. Respect for age. That really, we should be respectful of older people. That we should be respectful of our parents. Even, you know, often there are different levels of difficulties, and sometimes very extreme levels of difficulties. There's a very beautiful quality that's engendered in us. 
Now, sometimes you may, I'm sure you've noticed when I come into the hall, and many of us, we just kind of pay respects to the Buddha. And people may be doing very different things, you know, in their minds and hearts. What I do, just I come in and I, the Indian word is pranam or salute. I just close my eyes and I imagine that it is actually the Buddha sitting there. And it's quite amazing to me that within a few seconds of just imagining that I'm actually saluting the Buddha himself, this wonderful, deep feeling of respect arises in the heart and it feels so appropriate. It takes us outside of ourselves, this quality. It puts us in a relationship to something which is bigger than ourselves, wiser. And it's a very wholesome and very beautiful quality. There's generosity, there's morality, there's respect. The fourth of the, un- the, fourth of the wholesome actions is the quality of service. That we really begin to act increasingly, not only for our own welfare, but for the welfare of others. And that this becomes, as we proceed along the path and the training, this increasingly becomes the motivation behind our actions. Can what we do be done with the spirit of service? done with the spirit of helping others. This is true even on retreat. Even as you sit here for however long, whether a shorter time or the entire three months, the practice is not for yourself alone. It really isn't. Because the extent to which we purify our own hearts and our own minds to that extent we're able to help others. And so all, all of the practice that's done here, every sitting and every walking, if you can do it in the context and the remembrance, the recollection, that we're doing it not only for ourselves, that we're doing it for the welfare of all beings, you will find that it gives you a tremendous source of inspiration and strength. It makes it easier to practice. And it's, it's deeply true. The fifth of the wholesome actions is listening to the Dhamma and teaching the Dhamma, that when we listen with a concentrated mind, or speak with a concentrated mind, there's a tremendous purifying force that takes place. And there are many stories of people actually getting liberated just by hearing a phrase of teaching. So that should be a good incentive to you as you listen to the Dhamma talks, or in giving the Dhamma talks. you could get out early. (laughs) 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 On parole. (laughs) The last of the wholesome actions is meditation. Is the development of concentration, the development of insight. Generosity, morality, the quality of respect, the motivation of service, speaking the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma, and meditation. These are the actions which bring happiness to us in our lives. They bring happiness now and are the seeds of happiness. This this is what is meant by punya or meritorious action. This is the blessings that are possible.
I'm only about two-thirds done, but it's about an hour now, so I think we'll wait until next time. Avoiding what is unwholesome, doing what is good, purifying the mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. Very simple, very straightforward, takes a lot of application, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of wise attention to what we're doing in our lives. This is what our practice is about. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.